from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. I am your host, Chris Campbell. Team TOT, what is going on? Hope that everyone had a great 4th of July for those that celebrate, or Sunday for those that don't. And it's great to be back with you today in the digital studio. Listen, Team TOT, we are just four weeks away from the end of season three. It's hard to fathom that another chapter is about to be in the books. And we have some more great content to bring you before the season concludes. But before we get into that, let's talk about this week's guest. This week's guest knows how to play the game, literally. And by game, I mean he's a legal expert on the world of esports or competitive video games. Think about world famous titles like Pokemon, FIFA, StarCraft, Fortnite. You can't see me right now, but I definitely wasn't just doing a Fortnite dance. All of the above and many other games have become big business, literally having prize pools in the millions of dollars, and yet, they are largely underdeveloped when it comes to legal infrastructure and especially dispute resolution. Which is why this week's guest, Leonid Shmatinko, comes into play, pun intended. He has a lot to say about the growth and development of the industry, what the future might hold, and importantly, how you can get involved. We even talk about a couple of games currently big on the global scene. Anyway, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. So, sit back, Plug in your controller and enjoy my conversation with Leonid Shmatenko. And we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution and business. With me today as our guest, Mr. Leonid Shmatenko, who is an expert and works in the world of esports. Leonid, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here on your show. Thank you for your invitation. Great. And Leo, listen, um, we appreciate you being here in the studio today. And so um, we've talked a little bit, or we just made reference to video games and esports a little bit. But before we get into that, we want to know about you. So tell us, who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? So, well, um, it's a long story. I've been born in Ukraine in 1987. Uh, my parents moved to Germany, so I grew up in Germany, finished school in Germany and went uh, to university in Dusseldorf, which is my hometown, where I studied law, where I did my PhD, where I finished school and uh, where I did the first moot court, which actually brought me to arbitration. Even though my first arbitration experience is a little bit earlier, we had friends from St. Petersburg who were both, both lawyers and uh, they were doing arbitration back in the days they returned to Russia from Germany. But when I was 10, I remember I was telling like, I want to do arbitration without knowing what it was. But uh, somehow in the end, it all the dots connected. So I'm doing international arbitration. 
I'm currently at Peter and Kim in Geneva, and I'm really having a good time at the perk. Wow. Now, so there's a lot to unpack there. And um, we'll, we'll start with a couple of things you said. So really, from the age of 10, you knew that you wanted to go into arbitration. Is that right? Yeah, that's um, when I when I interviewed at um, law firms and I tell the story, usually everyone asks the same question, like, really, since you're 10? And I was like, yes, my mom always wanted me to become a doctor because she's a doctor, but I wanted to do medicine. I always wanted to do law. I don't know why, but uh, that's how it went. Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. So, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, was it, I guess, looking into that, what was the specific push in that direction? I mean, typically, if one wants to go into arbitration, they know that they want to be a lawyer. What interested you in the legal world to begin with? Well, I think I always liked languages. That's why I studied uh English and French at school and then I added um, Spanish in university and I grew up uh, lingually in uh, German and Russian with my parents so I always had these languages skills which said like you need to do to me a career which is international so international arbitration seemed interesting per se and um, I was a little bit I don't know how to say it, but I never wanted to do Erasmus, to be honest, even though I had the opportunity to do so. I thought that a moot court, and I did the VIS moot in 2008-2009, um, would be an opportunity which would give you more exposure to international students, to international law, and so on. And that's why I also was a member of ELSA, um, the European Law Students Association which also gave the opportunity to go to meetings all around Europe with ELSA and to do stuff that you usually don't do within your normal curriculum without, you know, departing for half a year to to a different state. That I did with my internships. I, I shifted a little bit the whole thing from being a student in a different country than being an intern in a different country because the experiences are different. Well, sure. And, you know, you, you mentioned the Bismuth, and that's something that is a, a commonality among a lot of the guests in the show. Um, you, do you think that doing the moot instead of something like Erasmus or anything else that you could have done was really important in that decision? Or do you think it was kind of you would have ended the arbitration road one way or another? I think it was the eye opening experience, if you might call it that way, because then you see that you don't need to focus on your domestic laws. Of course, you have to be really good in your domestic law. And I remember one really good advice from a partner in the law firm in Paris who said, before you start to work in international arbitration, go to your domestic jurisdiction, get some experience in litigation, I don't know, a year or two, and then you can do international arbitration. And actually, that's what I did before I really started off in international arbitration. Okay. So let's uh, let's continue along this stroll just a bit longer. So you, you're now at Peter and Kim. What type yes. of work do you do there and what do you focus on? Well, I'm doing arbitration in international commercial arbitration in German and English, mainly. A lot of gas pricing disputes. I'm also serving as secretary to the tribunal uh, with Dr. Wolfgang Peter, um, who is a very 
very diligent arbitrator and who is one of my idols. And um, I'm also doing investor state arbitration because this is what my PhD was about. I was working at the university at the chair of uh, public international law and my PhD is upon investor state arbitration in Crimea. <laughs> uh, and a little bit uh, sensitive topic, so to say. Um, and that's why I'm also doing investor state arbitration because I, during my study times, I had a pretty big crush on public law. Hmm. Well, sure. And so, and so that, that actually raises a couple more interesting questions. Um, people that go to law school already are doing more, uh, I guess, schooling than the average person, but you decided to go ahead and get your PhD as well. What was part of the decision-making process that took you to down that road? Well, you know, the education in Germany is a little bit different than in, um, in let's say the US, we have we don't have college and then um, law school. We just right from from our high school, we go right into the law school, which lasts for five years, and is finished with a bar exam, which consists of six written uh, exams and one oral one, which lasts each one for five hours, and you're asked about everything. Then you do a two years internship at different state at different stations, like at a district attorney at the court uh, at the embassy. I was, for example, at the embassy in Peru, uh, in Lima. Um, and then you have a second state exam where you write eight uh, exams each five hours and you have another oral exam for five hours. And if all of that is not enough, and I pretty much enjoyed um, writing term papers during my studying times and the uh, state bar changed because there were used to be term papers instead of the exams um, and I always had good grades in term papers and I had always a big interest into this topic uh, of inter investor state arbitration um, so I decided that for for a couple of reasons first that because the topic was interesting and I wanted to write something deeper about it uh, there was a reason to write a PhD and a second reason was that big law in Germany usually requires you or sees it as a necessity or a bonus if you have a PhD or an LLM in an English-speaking country. But since I had a lot of internships, the LLM was a little bit more or less preceded, but the PhD uh, I did for the two reasons, actually. Okay. <clears throat> no, that, that's interesting. That's fascinating. And my, my hat's off to, uh, to you and anyone else that goes to do a PhD. That's a lot of work. Yes. Um, I, I, I still not, did not defend it. It's still undefended. It took me a lot of years because I initially had a different topic. I was writing about investor state arbitration and the CIS in general. And then a lot of disputes forked up and I wanted to do a, a really thorough case analysis. Um, and when I started it, I was, I think one and a half years into the PhD when the Crimean crisis and the revolution of dignity in Ukraine happened which rendered my work, well, let's say 40% of my work or 50% of my work useless. Mm. So I was in the middle of my internships of my traineeships before the second state bar. I couldn't finalize it at that point. And um, so everything that happened was amending the topic, getting it aligned with your PhD supervisor, and then follow up. And because when I finished 
the second bar, I didn't want to, you know, take a break and uh, finish the PhD and then go into into law, into the practice. So I went into the practice, and if you're working full time, then everything takes even longer. So now I'm still didn't defend it. Uh, it's done. It's being polished. Um, and um, I, I always told myself that I'm going to buy a new Mac when I'm done with it, and I'm still using my MacBook from 2010. <laughs> <laughs> someday, However, someday. I we'll look every Mac OS X version, and I'm using EndNote, and I think I went from EndNote version 13 to now EndNote version 20. <laughs> ah, well. I will say we will definitely have to keep tabs on this. And uh, when we'll have a celebration, we'll have to have you back when you successfully defend it. That'd be great. Yeah, I will be happy. <laughs> well, look, Leo, um, you know, I, I don't want to uh, uh, to bury the lead here. Um, we started this episode of the conversation talking about uh, video games and it wasn't just arbitrary. You know, I guess it's a little bit more specified than that. You know, we want to get into it a little bit because I understand you have a great level of familiarity with esports. What exactly are esports for those listening at home? And do you participate in them yourself? Well, I never participated. To to take a second question first, I never participated in esports. I participated in LAN parties. If someone of our the listeners is remembering, that's when you took your huge tower with your 19-inch huge monitor to a freaky hole where you connected to a big switch and you played with your friends. Counter Strike or Halo or whatever, and usually ordered a lot of pizza. Um, I think these days are over for esports. Esports is highly professionalized, uh, competitive gaming on an international level nowadays. The major points I think were well the evolution of the computers, the evolution of internet that everybody has broadband now, and um, that publishers and other organizers saw that you can build a whole entertainment industry upon esports there are a lot of games which are entertaining and which attract millions and millions of watchers um, of people who who see it on twitch on their tv channels nowadays which show it show live european championships in i don't know dota 2 um or or League of Legends, or Counter-Strike, or FIFA. You, you can see it on TV. So I think esports, this competitive gaming where people spend full time, eight to 12 hours a day practicing, is making into a mainstream. And um, this is what makes the whole field interesting. Now that is interesting. And I, and I guess <clears throat> coming along with that, Anytime you have the growth of certain of a certain industry or you have a lot more people participating, so too come along contracts or agreements between parties, and so too, inevitably, unfortunately, disputes. What got you interested in esports? I guess is my first question, and then we'll talk a little bit about the contractual elements after that. Well, it's a little bit um I think I have to start from where I'm coming from. I'm I'm having a brown belt in judo. I due to studies I didn't quite make it to the uh, first black belt, which is on my list on my to-do list. Um, but 
there you have a lot of competitions and I participated in the third highest league in Germany and um, certainly you have decisions by referees which can be reviewed and the review body is usually an arbitration court which is inherent to the federation where you're participating be it I don't know be it judo or I have one of my best friends he's a professional dancer they have an institution and arbitral body as well and then I thought like so well esports is gaining momentum let's look do they have a common arbitration court how is it handled over there and then I started to look in the terms and conditions of um, the tournaments the terms and conditions of uh, the leagues and saw that there are basically dispute resolution clauses um, proposing arbitration for example in FIFA um, it seems a little bit natural but FIFA is foreseeing that if you have a dispute about I don't know cheating or and we can come to that if, if the listeners um, are interested about what kind of disputes can arise in esports um, if you have a dispute in a FIFA tournament then it's decided by a sole arbitrator in Switzerland according to the sky rules but if you go for example for a Call of Duty tournament then the Call of Duty tournament terms and conditions usually foresee a clause that is referring the dispute to jams uh, so there is no unif uniform forum it's pretty much dictated by by the publishers by the big leagues so what is happening is that it doesn't necessarily need to be like the the structure within the sports federations but what esports needs and particularly because the players are very young is a forum where they can resolve the disputes without you know traveling to switzerland or to traveling to the us and paying a lot for their attorneys and this is also something that me as a member of the Swiss Esports Federation, I'm actually um, consulting the Esports Federation on the establishment of a federation internal esports arbitration court, which is, shall resolve all the disputes within the members, within within tournaments and so on. So the, the, the real challenge is, and I think most of the most of the esports lawyers will agree with me that it's not to copy the system that we have in, in sports and arbitration sure this is a good thing but to establish arbitration for esports that meets the expectation of the stakeholders meaning players team owners um, federations publishers organizers licensees of the brand and so on because there are a lot of disputes which are alike like in sports but there are also a lot of disputes which do not have to do anything with what sports usually requires sure so you're kind of getting at the point of a tailor-made system something that's sensitive to the specific needs and intricacies of esports is that right correct and i think the COVID-19 pandemic, as unlucky as it is, also gave the arbitration community in general 
a glimpse of that virtual hearings are something that works. So this would be something that should be, in my opinion, certainly considered when establishing the overall umbrella of arbitration in esports and unifying it. Sure. No, I, I think that makes sense. Um, and I guess kind of going along with that, there would be need to be, um, I, I, guess, I guess the question that kind of comes up is that we as lawyers might see these sort of pragmatic realities. Has there been a recognition or a desire from the the players or I guess the teams or the, the organization or institution itself that there is a need for this sort of thing or is it kind of just not on their radar or somewhere in between? Well, I can tell from experience because um, I'm also a member of the German Esports Federation where we already have an arbitration court and there is certainly a need of that within the federation to be established to solve that kind of dispute. The Swiss Esports Federation, on the other hand, is much smaller. Um, that's why we're working at the moment on the concept whether it makes sense for a federation to have it or not, whether we should do other alternative dispute resolution, such as mediation, because, for example, in Germany we have a problem that um, we cannot arbitrate labor disputes. So, for example, if a player who's not getting paid from his team um, would like to sue the team, he would either have to go at the moment to the labor court, and I mean the labor court sure can resolve the dispute. It's not a, a really typical dispute um, to to esports. It just it, it will be a normal e dispute um, about um, labor questions, though with a specification that if the question is, for example of underperformance what do you how do you define underperformance in esports it's because you're getting i don't know 15 kills instead of 25 in fortnite or is it because you you play zerg instead of protoss and starcraft what how do you define it and i think this needs a little bit of sensitivity why it would make sense to to get this dispute to to mediation in germany because labor disputes are not arbitrable or maybe this dispute has, and this is why mediation might also serve well, um, is it because this dispute is due to personal, they just need to find the problem where it is. It's not about the underperformance, so to say, but about something completely different. And if this is solved, solved um, differently, then you don't even need to go to the court. So. This is, these are thoughts that are within the federations. And the federations, well, they, they also look at, I think this is also where your, your question was a little bit hinting at to um, whether esports shall be recognized as sports. Am I guessing correctly? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I mean, I know that that was part of uh, the calculus even in this upcoming Tokyo Olympics. Um, you know, where does that line between digital and uh, real life real life physical sports begins yes so so there you have also different approaches i mean the the german esports federation is trying to push to to get it in knowledge the the swiss esports federation on the other hand has partially given up on that idea on getting esports recognized as sport but um in the midterm but wants it to be somehow recognized um for example, the German legislature 
last year introduced a new clause into the immigration law, which allows um, players, esports players from third-party states to receive a visa if they, they want to come to Germany for esports tournaments. It's not recognized as sports, but um, if you want to, to recognize it as some kind of a branch, an entertainment branch, which is really important, then you have to recognize it. Not, re not as sports necessarily, but that's what some states did. For example, in South Korea, esports is considered sports. In Ukraine, passed the legislation upon the lobbying of Navi, one of the biggest um, team owners in the esports business and the Ukrainian Esports Federation, um, that esports is a fully recognized sport. It has an own law. Um, and this gives also the whole macro system more freedom for, for, for players to receive visas, for players uh, to be able to travel, and also for the, for the disputes that, that might arise. I mean, the more serious something is taken, the more are also disputes taken. I mean, I've talked to a lot of lawyers um, and a lot of colleagues five years ago, and everyone was telling me like, sports, what that? And everybody was laughing. And when we, when we have a discussion now, they always are eager to know what there is, what there is coming. What, what, what's happening? How many disputes are happening? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, that, I think that's the way that it is with a lot of markets, right? People kind of chuckle and don't take it seriously at first until, I mean, there's real money on the table. So that, that's really interesting. That's a really a sort of intriguing thought process. Um, I guess this is a lot. I, I think similarly, though, a point that I would pick up on is I think for a lot of listeners, um, there may still just be a general unawareness <laughs> of exactly um the law the legal issues around esports and kind of just the where the where the industry might be headed um where would you recommend one might go as a starting place um if they wanted to get more acqu acquainted and familiar with esports maybe the law legal issues around it well i first um would advise to to go on google and type in the search field esports and arbitration or esports and alternative dispute resolution. Um, there are some articles which are worth reading. Um, for example, by um, Mr. Boonstra, I think it's called um, Player Join the Game about esports. It's from 2018. Um, I have written an article on esports and arbitration. And um, Benjamin Listener from CMS in Cologne, who have a pretty strong connection with the ESL, which is one of the biggest organizers of esports leagues in, in the world. Um, they are, as far as I know, a client of CMS. So they, they have their own rules. They have also their own arbitration tribunal. Um, so this is something to first dive in. And if you want to participate, if you want to be part of it, then I think the the domestic esports federations, and I have recently looked up on the International Esports Federation website, um, and the funny thing is that the International Esports Federation president is also the president of the International Judo Federation, so <laughs> there we have something in common, um, that um, it's of now around 80 countries around the world have 
recognized esports federations which are lobbying esports in their countries with legislation and so on and so if you want to participate those other groups which are super easy approachable um that you should go to and where you can participate okay i know that, that that's really interesting um what are some of the challenges facing the esports industry and and how do you think some of these issues might be addressed well again i can talk a little bit of our experience here at the Swiss Esports Federation. Um, I think that the challenges are mainly in the in the relationship between esports and politics in general, because politicians are of a certain age or of a certain generation, which did not grow up with esports. And um, it's difficult to tell them that it's a field that is important, that is not stupid looking at the screen without any intellectual work or mind sport, so to say, like chess. I mean, there are trading card games which are as difficult as chess, for example, Magic the Gathering, where price monies are also around 1 million or Hearthstone by Blizzard, one of the biggest uh, publishers in the world, which also has prize monies around two to three million dollars. And um, what, what the president of our federation, Switzerland, told is that once you approach the politicians at the, well, let's say at the regional or municipal level and show them that you can get problematic youth or, or guys and girls who are, I don't know, could be beating up someone on the street or stealing to a youth club which is offering them competitive gaming that that gets them on the street that this also works i mean not everyone is sporty not everyone can do a normal sport that that gets them off the street and also gets this problem done and this is what works i mean in in here in the swiss regions there are a lot of regions which have have bought computers gaming computers or or consoles and installed them in youth clubs and um and it really helped to get a lot of people from the street which were just hanging out there and doing nothing or doing strange things and i just remember from my childhood that we had a youth club in germany in, in dusseldorf where I, where I was growing up and um there was the super nintendo with Street Fighter 2 and um, International Superstar Soccer, what eventually became uh, Pro Evolution Soccer. And I remember that all these guys usually were beating up people on the street like, uh, and just mugging them. That since the Super Nintendo arrived in the youth club, they weren't on the street, they were just competing against each other at Street Fighter. Well, sure. Um, well, and that brings up a, a really important pressing question. Uh, in Street Fighter 2, who's your who's your main? Who do you play with? I don't remember. I I think I was usually taking Q. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been a Guile guy myself. Is this a good old Sonic Boom? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that that's a really nerdy reference for you listeners at home that have no idea what we're talking about. Um, so. Uh, no, I think that that's that's a great point, especially that uh, the access to competition and alternative things that uh, can keep, especially younger folks, um, 
occupied. I think that that's really interesting and a potential even a professional career. I mean, uh, my little brother is doing streaming and, you know, thinking about a career, a career or at least a pastime as, as a gamer. I mean, th these are tangible conversations that are not just theoretical anymore. Sure. And, and if I may add to my last um, reply, you know that gaming computers are usually very, very expensive. So I think that that kind of youth clubs that invest that money, they also give the opportunity to to kids or to to teenagers who whose families cannot afford such a computer to to have this opportunity and yes it's a it's a full-fledged career i mean you can it you can be an influencer on anything nowadays and and this is a perfectly valid business there are mbas who are teaching you on how to build a successful instagram page and how to make money out of it so it's the world is moving we're evolving. I mean, we have to acknowledge that even though it's not physical work, it is work and it can be also be mental work, which involves a lot of thinking. So um, everything of this is a business that is growing. And during the pandemic, the searches for esports tournaments on Google have quadrupled. So before you had 12.5 million people searching for it. Now you have 50 to 60 million who are usually watching esports games on Twitch or YouTube or wherever. So this is a proper job. Yeah, and I, and I guess that sort of uh, dovetails nicely into, I guess, maybe a follow-up question there. Um, where do you think we are in the life cycle of the industry? I mean, do you think it's still on the upswing? It's still on that, that place where it's adding tons and tons of momentum? Or do you think it's kind of plateaued at some point? Well, for, for colleagues in, in arbitration, I would say now is the time to enter the market. Uh, <laughs> because the Esports industry is not young. It's around 20 years old already. It's over its teenager years. But the professionalization is just taking off. The the kind of, of professionalization that we have now where the international of Dota 2 is gathering 70,000 people in a stadium and where millions and millions watch it over, over Twitch um, is just the beginning i think we're we haven't reached the plateau yet the plateau will come eventually it's difficult for me to say because i didn't study that and i didn't look into recent studies whether the plateau will be reached in the next five or ten years but i think there is a lot of leeway still for esports to grow and and i think the publishers see it more and more so a lot of competitive games come into play and um, a lot of problems come with those games as well. For example, if you're banned for doping in a game, A, let's say you're, you're banned in Counter-Strike because you were doping with some kind of uh, enhancement drug to be more concentrated. That doesn't mean that you're banned for Valorant, which is a different game where a lot of players are now sweeping into. So these kind of problems, A, they need to be solved, and B, there needs to be a dispute resolution body and an administrative body 
which will keep the bands throughout all esports. I mean, well, let's say, okay, so you have been banned in Counter Strike and Valorant, but then you decide, oh, I'm I'm a good and I'm a good strategy game player, so I'm going to go to real time strategy and play StarCraft 2 now. Nobody will forbid you to do that. And that is why esports needs regulation, more regulation for sure. Uh, why it is now the time for our colleagues from the legal business to join us in the course and to, to help shape the esports business in a legal way that is fair, that is fair to younger players, um, that will dis that will solve and resolve disputes which might arise in a really efficient manner. I mean, in esports, <clears throat> it's like in during the Olympics, we we can't take three months to nominate the three three people tribunal. We just can't. It has to be quick. It has to be very quick, and the dispute has to be resolved. And we have to have a database of dopers. We have a data to have a database of banned people, so they can compete as it is. And if esports is having the ambition to be taken serious, then it has to have to take serious measures. I, I think that's that's well said. And I guess the last question that I might have for you um, on on this line, I guess, of questioning is. And, and touching on something we've kind of hinted at throughout this conversation, where do you think lawyers can add the most value to the community at this stage? Is it writing articles? Is it, you know, sending an email to the, the leadership of the organizations and saying, hi, we should do this and here's how? What, what are your thoughts there? I think your second point um, hits the bullet. Um, it's the, the federations get more and more influence on the legislation and the politics they're taken more serious if you're or if you're an organized federation you have to say more you're more serious so as a lawyer you can contribute there by shaping it from the very beginning i mean many countries don't even see where where regulation needs to be done so this is where you can make a difference as a lawyer and give your pro bono hours to something that is um, worth it and which might become out of pro bono something which brings even billable hours. Sure. No, I, I, that, that's a valuable thing. Um, well, listen, before we shift here from talking esports in particular, um, do you have any projects or anything upcoming in the esports world that you want to share or talk about? <clears throat> yes, I do. Uh, indeed. Um, well, first of all, we're at the moment, we're trying to see whether there is an um, whether there is place for an arbitration tribunal within the Swiss Esports Federation. So once we're done with the preliminary stage and the board approves that the idea works well, it has to be evaluated. Um, then this would be something that would need to be established. I.e., the rules would have to be written. Um, the whole administrative um, framework has to be established. So this is one of the projects at the Swiss Esports Federation I'm currently working on uh, whenever I have a free minute besides work. And in the German Esports Federation, we're actually a little more far ahead. We're at the moment trying to establish 
um, regional federations because Germany is a federal state. So um, the 16 Länder, they are now trying to get each of them a federation, which then will be part of the umbrella federal federation. Um, so this is the project that I'm currently working on, on drafting the statutes for the federations and so on. So um, actually, if you want to be to become really good in, in club law and know how also everything works in uh, football, basketball and other kind of uh, sports, then this is also something where you can get a lot of experience uh, in, at, at very early stages and, and see how how the baby is born actually. Oh, very interesting, fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff. Um, well, you know, leaving the esports the, the e uh, topic there for just a moment, uh, here's just, I guess, a, a question I really like to hear from folks on is, uh, throughout your career, and you've done a lot of things from, um, from an academic standpoint, from um, a practical working standpoint, and even pioneering a new industry, uh, what have been, who have been some of the mentors or maybe what have been some of the guiding forces that have sort of um, uh, been guiding stars throughout your uh, throughout your career yeah i have a, i have a few I, I had a few stations in my life and i think the first one was um siegfried elsing of, of auric in dusseldorf together with uh, now partner carsten faulhaber who are who are both in arbitration who are really big names and who even though i was an intern in my third year at law school out of five uh gave me a lot of responsible work and supported me throughout my whole career and i'm still in contact with them and it's uh they're wonderful people wonderful mentors who who give a, a lot of support um certainly uh Georges Petrochilos of Three Crowns, who was back then at Freshfields, um, and Sam Luttrell, who's now at Clifford Chance, a partner in, in Perth. They both also trusted me a lot of work um, in gas pricing disputes at a very early age, uh, which I'm very thankful for. Um, Michael Schneider of, um, of Lalif, with whom I had the pleasure to work with, and of course, uh, Dr. Wolfgang Peter and Konstantin Christie of uh, Peter and Kim, who are who are really supporting and mentoring in every kind of detail in international arbitration with their immense experience in the field. And um, I think it's it's an honor to learn from all these people at at very different stages in your life and at the early stages of your international arbitration career because they have seen so many arbitrations that you can't even imagine or count and uh, the practical tips and the insights and the anecdotes they have it's um it's something that defines you i think a lot and that gives you a lot of experience that you wouldn't get yourself and those are people who you look up to and say that's um that's how I want to become. Sure. No, and that, that's great. And, uh, you know, we, we do have a segment where typically um, the last question is uh, shout outs, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to, we'll make sure to tag the names that you've mentioned here um, when we post and share this. Uh, but that, that's some great names and sounds like they've had a really big influence. Um, here's, a, here's, a, here's some rapid fire questions, some ones that are, I think are a little bit uh, more streamlined. 
Um, what are you reading right now? What, uh, what kind of books are on your bookshelf? Uh, I'm currently reading uh, Dictator Land, The Man Who Stole Africa by Paul Kenyon. Um, it's about um, all the dictatorships that arose on the African continent once the African countries um, obtained their independence. And I'm also reading uh, New World Order by Henry Kissinger, um, which is also an interesting point of view from a politician on the, um, well, on the world order and how everything is working. I mean, you can't be a fan of Kissinger or you, or are you aren't, but uh, the book from an objective point of view is uh, pretty interesting. Sure, sure. I mean, it's definitely um, one of those contemporary sort of philosophy sort of uh, treatises. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, how about how about music, music and or uh, media that you're consuming? I'm waiting for the remastered album by Metallica, the Black Album, which okay. is uh, turned 30 this year. There is a special edition called um, The Blackened uh, with 53 artists who are participating in it, uh, reinterpreting Metallica songs on their own way and everything that uh, comes from the from buying this album will go into charity. So this is what I'm, I'm really looking forward to. Um, I'm, uh, I'm hoping that um, I will make it on 1st of August to Italy to the Opera Festival to see Tornado with uh, Anna Netrebko together with my wife um, and yeah those are the things that are going to come and I hope that next year probably Rock Amring will return to to hear some live rock music again uh, at a festival yeah with a negative PCR are, test or with a with a vaccination yeah, or, you know, the, these yeah. EU vaccine passports. I know that those are becoming uh, the, the vote in vogue thing that we'll probably all have to have at some point for traveling around locally. Yeah. Um, well, so all that, all that is very interesting. And maybe this sort of ties in uh, to this next question. One of the huge things that has been, I think, COVID has really showed us is that there's this importance or this emphasis that we have to have on maintaining our physical and our mental health. What have been some of the things that you've done over the past year or so, or just in general, in order to sort of maintain that balance? Uh, Ring Fit by Nintendo. It's a, <laughs> uh, it, it sounds funny, but it's a, it's a game which uh, um, introduces physical activity into the game. It's um, a mix of a game and a role play game and a physical activity game. So this is something really cool and what finally became available in Europe is um, Les Mills On Demand uh, with Body Pump and Body Combat, which are usually instructed in uh, in gyms. So with a screen and and the necessary equipment, you can also do everything at home. Sure. Um, I, I think that those are both really important. Um, listeners to the show will know that I have become a voracious walker. I ha I walk. <laughs> A ton just every day. I'll take at least an hour up and down hills, explore new neighborhoods. Um, it's just it's, it's a lot of fun. That's how I try to and catch Pokemon and Pokemon Go, right? Ah, yes, yes. You outed me. Um, 
you know, I, and I actually have taken a little bit of a break the last couple of months um, because I have I was playing too much. <laughs> um, but but that I mean, you know, talking about the concept of esports, that's a that is a wild sort of ecosystem in itself. You know, that people are spending you know thousands of dollars to be competitive in the game, and it's just you know I like to walk, and so that makes me more competitive than the average person. But sheesh. Yeah. Um. So uh, this is a, this is a fun one. Uh, if you were approached by a current student, a recent graduate, or someone that's looking to break into, well, you've talked about esports, so maybe we'll just talk about international arbitration more broadly. Uh, what advice would you give them to prepare them, or to sort of give them some guidance? Well, a do a moot court, no matter which one. Do the Jessup, do the Vis, do the Manfred Lux Space Law moot court, do the uh ipit games moot court in riga do the telders moot court just do a moot court it will help you for sure um b um do as many internships as you can while you're young you're never gonna get as much experience as you get in those young years when you can make through three nights with all-nighters and be still fit because once you turn 30 plus it won't be that easy anymore and um you will also learn a lot from the mentors from the early stages from people who are years and years in the field of arbitration and who will give you the guidance and the experience even though you might be ending up sometimes turning pages side checking copying uh proofreading or whatever it doesn't matter it's experience that you will cherish once you grow up because you can do it on your own and you can be sure that the work product you're producing is proofread by you because you did it and you did it for someone else as well and those experiences i think are like uh you can't you really just can't pay for them it's something which is which is um something that nobody can take from you and even if you want to and that's what i did and i was really lucky if you can go to a really faraway country, I went to Clayton Nuts in Australia with Doug Jones, who I, who I forgot to mention, who also mentored me a lot, especially from the arbitrator's point of view. Um, then you will have a unique experience that you will remember all your life because it was something completely different from the culture where you come from. To see something, to grow up, to, to live on your own, and to to yeah to have an opportunity to see something else no i think that's good advice and um you know i think each of those elements i think will resonate to with a lot of people that have found their home and their their livelihood in international dispute resolution and international law so so i think those are good thoughts um that also gives you the openness to live in a different country as an actor well that's right well, that's right. And I think that that is, you know, when you, if you want to talk about the value and getting people to sort of understand where another population or culture is coming from, living amongst those people and getting to know those people, I mean, those are all the things that are going to allow you to sort of much better than a book or a movie or a song or anything would do, going out and actually coming face to face with those people and seeing that in many ways they might call their values different things or they might translate those things differently. But at the end of the day, people um, are fundamentally very similar all around the world. Um, 
you know, you know, we're coming towards the end of our time together, Leo. Um, but I do have just the, these last couple of questions for you. First, um, what do you think you'd be doing if it weren't uh, being a lawyer? I think I would still be in law, uh, but maybe from the academic side. Hmm. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, and let's say it's 5 p.m. on a Friday and you are somehow completely free for the weekend, no COVID, anything like that. How would you spend uh, that weekend? I would take our car, get packed, uh, and go to Italy, which is only 400, meter, 400 kilometers from Geneva, uh, to go to either the uh, Lago di Como uh, or to the sea right away and enjoy the sun. Yeah, no, it's that, and it's that time of year where the sun is getting nice and strong. So um, that, that that sounds like a perfect weekend. Um, the final question that we have for you today, and you've done um, a decent number of them. Do you have any shout outs that you want to give to folks that might be listening in the audience? Sure. I forgot to mention some of the people that also supported me throughout my career. And it are uh, Tunde Oyevole of uh, Auric, who was an associate at uh, Freshfields when I interned back then in Paris there. And we met again at Auric uh, to... Dr. Alexander Kröck, who was my first boss in Munich when I just started my career, uh, to Nico Köppel, also of Canton Wein, the law firm where I started, uh, where we had a lot of uh, good times together, to Vincenzo Speziale of uh, Now Gayar, uh, Shalbaya Disputes in Paris, um, who was fun to work with when I entered at the Ransengaravi, uh, where I also worked with Sergei Alechin, who is now counsel at Wilkie Farr in Paris. Um, well, to all the people I worked at Lalif with, who were really big fun, and um, to my PhD supervisor, Professor Dr. Alexander Lortz, uh, who's having the patience of me taking so long with this uh, book, uh, who's now Secretary of State for Education in the land of Hesse in, in Germany. Wow. Oh, that's very cool. And, that's, and look, I love when people have come to the show with a good li uh, list of folks in mind that they want to give shout outs to. And we'll make sure to give uh, proper tips to the cap to all of those people. Um, I'm going to give a couple of shout outs uh, of my own that are related to first uh, how you and I met in the first place. Uh, the good folks over at Arbitration Happy Hour, Sneha Ashtakar and Svenja Vakdel. Um, so shout out to those ladies. And of course, I would be remiss, and, and I guess I should also note um, both were guests on the show, just like this next person I'm going to mention, who I'm sure is listening right now, even though he has abandoned us, they're still here in the world of law and arbitration. I'm speaking, of course, of Sharif Abdel Wahab. So <laughs> Sharif, tip of the cap to you. Shout out to you, bro. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show sometime too. Yes, Sharif. Uh, shout out to you too. Remember our times at Freshfields in Paris. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, well, look, Leo, um, our time unfortunately is uh, winding down. Uh, we appreciate you coming by the show. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me. It was great fun. Uh, we might catch up after esports has taken some more momentum and then update our folks about what's happening in the scene. Absolutely, would love to do that. Um, well, thanks again. Leo, you wanna sign us off?
Yes, sure. Thank you very much. There is no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Great. And we will see y'all next time. Sheesh. What an action-packed episode. Team TOT, any of y'all got any quarters? <laughs> That's an old video game joke. You see, there used to be these things called arcades. You know what? Never mind. I know I learned a lot, and I'm curious to learn more and potentially get involved with the legal world of video games and video game disputes. As Leo mentioned, there is an eSports federation in a number of countries around the world where you can get involved, and we'll be sure to include a link to the international organization Global eSports Federation in the show notes. On another note, I hope you had a chance to tune in to last week's episode of Disputes Digest. In addition to the regular episode, we did a special interview with Barrister Sajid Suleiman on the topic of conflicting dispute resolution clauses. As described in his article published on the Use Mundi blog and brought to you in partnership with the London Very Young Arbitration Practitioners Group and Tales of the Tribunal. We'll be bringing you new interviews every month, so be sure to tune in. Finally, as always, if you're enjoying the content, we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a follow on LinkedIn or left us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBeta Solutions, and show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Show interns are Matthew Catherine and Ramatulahi Jallo. Feedback and comments for the show can be sent to talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. That's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as a legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.